I'm pretty sure if I didn't corral y'all up, y'all sit here in fellowship all day. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Good morning, everybody. Man, what an excited time it is to be alive. Isn't it awesome to know that we've been called into the kingdom for such a time as this, you guys? I'm telling you what, man. The Lord is doing great things. He's doing great things, and uh, I'm just excited to get to preach his word. Can you guys just take a moment and let this worship team, if you would, though, let them know how appreciative they are. Christian Brown, thank you for praying, man. You made it easy to get up here and preach, bro. <laughs> come on. Come on. Well, I've got a lot to share with you guys today, and I'm going to attempt to close out our Storyteller series. But before I dive into today's message, I want to first of all just kind of remind you of the purpose of this series. See, storytellers, and this has been the intent all along, it's the call that God has placed on the life of every single believer. And what I mean by that is God has called each and every one of us to tell others about the good things that God has done in our life, to tell about our story. Now, there's some of you that are here that you may not even know what your story is. Well, first of all, can I just assure you that you do indeed have a story? Look at the person next to you and say, you have a story. Come on. You have a story. And watch this. Your story is different than my story. It's different than the story of all those that are around you. But that is what makes your story so important. You have a story that someone needs to hear. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, man, I'm right in the middle of something difficult right now. So I've got to make sure I get through this thing before I can tell my story. No, 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 no. You see, God, he wants you to tell others about what you're going through, even if it's not resolved yet. Are you with me? Just because things haven't been fully resolved, that doesn't mean that you can't let other people know that you're trusting God in the middle of what you're going through. As a matter of fact, whenever I hear people talking about what they're currently going through and how they're choosing to trust God despite their circumstances... Like, sometimes I feel like that story can even speak louder because this person here, they have not yet experienced the breakthrough uh, that they wanted, yet they are trusting that God is at work and that he's going to be faithful to bring about his plans and purposes in their life, which will eventually work for our good and also for his glory. Now, I don't know if this illustration hits you the same way that it does me, but I like movies. Uh, we don't watch a, a whole lot of them, and we're actually pretty selective about the ones that we do watch. But when I do get the chance to watch a good movie, uh, I really enjoy it. However, I love watching TV series. And again, there's only a few ones that we watch, and again, we're selective about the ones that we do watch. Uh, but we love TV series, um, like Blue Bloods. Amen. Come on, I know there's some Blue Bloods fans out there. I, we love Blue Bloods. That's our favorite uh, series. And, um, and I'm going somewhere with this illustration, so, so stay with me here. But movies will have a resolve within a couple of hours at the most. But a TV series can last for a long time. Like, for example, my favorite TV series, Blue Bloods, right now is on the 13th season. 
And watch this. I have never thought to myself, man, I wish this thing would end. I wish this thing would have a resolve. No. Why? Because for me, and I love this about TV series, is it's more lifelike because each week, whenever I watch it, there's always something that's hanging out there that needs to be resolved. Come on, doesn't that sound like life right there? Sure, we get to see things resolve from time to time, and we're kind of grateful when we do see things resolved, but also in life, things often lingers. They don't always get resolved as quickly as we would like for them to. And again, this right here to me is, is akin to life because in life there are often issues that just don't get resolved quickly. But what I want you to know is this, is that you can be walking through something difficult that hasn't been resolved yet. And it is okay to tell others about what you're going through even though it hasn't been resolved. Are you with me? Like, it's okay to say, my kids aren't serving the Lord yet, but I trust that God is at work in their life. It's okay to say, I'm struggling, and I feel like somebody needs to hear this. It's okay to say, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression, but I trust that God is going to see me through. It's okay to say, I lost my job. But I believe that God is going to provide. It's okay to say, I haven't received the physical healing that I've prayed for yet. But I'm not going to stop praying because I believe that I serve a God who hears my prayers and that he will bring about a resolve in his proper timing. Hey, the doctor's report, you know what? They may say, there's nothing that we can do. Your boss, he may hand you a pink slip. But don't see that experience like you would see a movie, but see it like a TV series that has a bunch of cliffhangers. Because watch this, season six of your life may seem like a flat one, but watch out because here comes season seven. And season seven is going to be a much different one than the last one. Come on, do you receive that word? I guess what I'm saying is this, is you may feel like the network has canceled your series, but God will pick it up again. <laughs> Why? Because God is not done writing your story. And he wants you to tell your story in every season, even the ones that feel flat to you. Because maybe someone else is having a flat season, and they need to see the faith that you're trusting to believe that there's going to come a better one. So in every season and in every episode, not just when the, the, the season or the episode is even over, but even as it is being written. See, follow this. It doesn't take faith to tell about something that has already happened. I mean, if you think about it, that's just showing gratitude right there. But faith is spoken and expressed when it hasn't happened. That's why the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that's still yet not to be seen, right? For example, whenever I tell you guys about all that I just went through with the surgery and all that stuff, it doesn't require faith for that to happen. It requires faith for me to tell it, but it doesn't take faith for it to happen. Why? Because it's already happened, right? Now, it required a lot of faith when I was going through that thing. But watch this. In contrast, consider 
what my wife is currently going through, especially for those of you that may not know. Like, so for her, um, and by, by the way, for those of you who don't know, she can't uh, speak. And so if you're wondering, well, the pastor's wife never comes and says anything to me. It's because she has a paralyzed vocal cord, okay? All right. And so if she's um, not saying a whole lot, that's why she's saving her voice. But watch this. There's something that she's been telling everyone because, see, in contrast, she's speaking in faith in the middle of what she's going through. And I've said this to you, and I'm going to say it a second time, that by the end of this year, you will see her up here with a microphone praying over you at the end of worship and being up here and preaching the gospel again. She's in the middle of it, which puts her in a perfect position to speak in faith. Now, some of you that are here this morning, you're in the middle of it. It's a very big word right there, isn't it, for just two letters? <laughs> you're in the middle of it. <laughs> and some of you haven't experienced the resolve that you've been praying for and that you've been hoping for. That's okay. Tell your story anyway. And speak in faith the things that you believe that God is going to do. And watch this. If your faith isn't there yet, that's okay. Just build it up a little bit. I mean, that's, that's what God's told us to do. That's what his words told us to do. Jude 1.20. Beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. So if you feel like you're weak in your faith or you're a little low in your faith, then just start praying in the spirit. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Or spend time in his word because whenever I am weak in my faith, you know, it's usually because I'm weak in the word. I'll confess first, all right, if no one else wants to own up and pony up. But there's times whenever I feel like, man, my, wake, my, my, my faith is weak. It's because I've not spent time in God's word as I should. But watch this because this right here is such an elementary thing, but yet so many of us, we skip right by, by it, and we want to go learn Hebrew and all this other stuff, and it's like, no, let's get back to the basics, folks. We need to pray in the Spirit, and we need to spend time in God's Word. That's why Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing. Where does faith come from? Hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, through the Word of God. And so if your faith is weak, build it up. Build it up. Pray. Spend time in God's word. Get in a community group. We got two great community groups that are just waiting for you guys to be a part of. Serve others. And then wait. Wait and watch God move. Friends, he is faithful. I said he is faithful. He will finish all that he has started in your life. Watch this. Just only make sure that you don't cancel the series, all right? Don't throw in the towel. Don't change the channel. Amen? All right, that's the mini sermon before the sermon. Y'all ready? I got to give you an appetizer first. All right, so let's dive right in. I've got so much to share with you. Oh, man, we're going to pick back up where we left in the book of Job. And I mentioned last week that I have absolutely loved reading the book of Job of the last several months, probably because it's helped me to gain a better understanding of all the things that my family and I just walked through. But it's also helped me to recognize that God doesn't leave anything unfinished. He just doesn't. Last week we saw that with Job, he lost everything. From all of his livestock, all of his servants, all ten of his children, and then to add insult to injury, then he had boils that hit his, his health, his body, from head to toe. And then to make matters worse, Job's wife tells him that he should just curse God and die. Yet in all this, Job refuses to sin against God. 
Now, in the second half of Job's life, we see three friends who come to see Job. And at first, it kind of appears as if they're coming to comfort him, uh, to encourage him, and kind of just to be there for him. But in a similar manner, as we see as Job's wife, they do the opposite. They criticize Job. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just spend a good amount of time looking at these three friends because the majority of our life is surrounded by relationships. As a matter of fact, I think that we could probably say that all of life is about relationships. Relationships with God first, but then relationships with people. And I just want to bring this understanding to those of you who may not know but that in life, people will criticize you when you're successful, and people will criticize you when you fail. People will criticize you when you do the right thing, and people will criticize you when you do wrong. Everyone faces criticism in life. Actually, I take that back. Um, there is one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing. And be nothing. Some of you will know that reference. <laughs> but watch out even if you take that path because sure enough, someone will arise who will criticize your nothingness. <laughs> right? But Job's friends, and here's the interesting thing, not his enemies. Job's friends, they came to see Job and they all criticized him. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that would never happen to me. My friends, they would never do that to me. <laughs> Um, do you know in the South, we have a saying for people who think naively. It goes a little something like this, bless your little heart, right? <laughs> so if you think that way, bless your little heart. Hey, that's great if you've got friends who are there for you and they always praise you and they always tell you how excited uh, they are to be around you and they give you pats on the back and constantly talk about all the great things that you are to them. That, that's wonderful, but watch this. If we live for the praises of men, then we will die by their criticisms. Are you with me? Don't live for that. Don't live for that. So Job had three friends that came to him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I think these three friends, they serve as an example of types of people that we might find in our lives. Now Eliphaz, he was a man who presents himself as having it all together. He's the guy who's always talking about God encounters, and he'll talk to you about seeing ghosts and having visions and dreams. But he believes that if you've not had the same experiences that he's had, then, brother, you're not saved. Anybody know anyone like that? I do. And I try to stay as far away from them as possible because they are those who... They talk about God, and they will even mix in a little truth with their words, but they only look down on you from the place of superiority. And they imply that if you will only listen to them and do as they do, then your life would be great, and then you'd have the favor of God. Kind of like the two men that went up to the temple to pray, remember? Jesus talked about him in Luke chapter 18. The one was a Pharisee. The other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he talked about all those good things that were right in his life. But he does so by elevating himself to the place of superiority when making judgment on the tax collector. 
But Jesus brings about proper understanding as to how God saw that situation. Because you see, it wasn't the Pharisee who went home right with God that day, but rather the tax collector who recognized that he had nothing to bring to God, nothing good to give, but needed God's mercy. Church, don't ever think of yourself as having earned anything. Because every good gift that you have in your life, every good gift comes from heaven above. James 1.17. I mean, it's all grace. And if you don't recognize this truth, then you should be prepared for when that thing that you've taken credit for gets taken from you. And Job understood this truth. And that's why Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And then there's Job's friend, Bildad. And just to give you a little bit of insight into Bildad, he's the man with all the clever cliches. He's the kind of guy who has a pet proverb and a pet answer for everything. And he likes to go around just stabbing people with those pet answers and his knowledge of the biblical text. He's the kind of guy who doesn't use the Bible as a scalpel, but more like a dagger. Come on, you ever met anyone like that? Don't look their way if they're here this morning, okay? <laughs> but then there's the third friend, and there's, there's Zophar. Zophar, he, he's the man with the made-up mind. He's Mr. Know-it-all. He knows what God's going to say and what God will do in each and every situation. He has an absolute monopoly on God, and if you want to know what God's doing, then you need to go to him. Now, here's something that's worth noting. Of the 42 chapters of the book of Job, 30 of those chapters include Job's friends. So three-fourths of the book of Job has to do with these relationships. And I think that it speaks to the fact that the majority of our life is going to revolve around relationships. And without question, the book of Job, it gives us some insight into how we're to navigate those relationships. Even the second to last paragraph in the book of Job, we find God dealing with how Job's friends treated him. Church, how many of you know that how we treat people matters to God? As a matter of fact, your greatest testimony, it will never be that you never stole anything or that you never lied or that you never missed church. No, outside of your faith in the finished work of Christ, your greatest testimony will be how you treated others. Notice that all of Job's friends, they spoke about the things of God, right? I mean, his friends, they weren't the fellows that were hanging out at the tavern every night who knew nothing about God. They just simply mishandled the truth about God. And I think this is pretty important and worth mentioning also because had Job had friends who knew nothing about God, then they wouldn't have given him no, I mean, they would have given him no hope. Job makes reference to this truth when he says, it's the godless that have hope. And I mention this because I don't want you to believe this lie because I've heard many people say this before. Well, my friends in the world, they're better than friends in the church. No, no, you need to hear this. Your friends in the world, they can't offer hope because they don't have hope. And so that's what we're looking at here this morning. Those that know God, you know, that don't know God, they have no hope. And so understand that. But what we are talking about this morning are those in our life that claim the name of Jesus, but they use 
the truth of God in abstract ways. And, and I think that this can even kind of hit home with a lot of us as well. So some of you, as we're looking at some of these, if you'll be honest enough with yourself, you may find that you are, are one of those three. For example, and we're going to kind of break down what each one of them said in, in a short bit, but Eliphaz, he, he was the first friend to speak. And Eliphaz, what he did was he suggested that Job was a sinner. He said that surely one who was righteous would not be suffering in the manner in which Job was. And so he doesn't, like, come right out and call Job a sinner. He just suggests it. But then Bildad, he came and he didn't suggest that Job was a sinner as Eliphaz did, but he supposed that Job was a sinner. And that's why he said in Job 8.6, if you are pure and upright, Surely now he will stir himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Bildad's position was, surely there must be some hidden sin in your life, Job. Now, I've known a lot of Bildads in my life. Those who like to throw salt in your wound. But I think if we were all honest, we've all been Bildad at one time or another. I'm talking about judgments that we've made about others when we see their calamity. And though we may not come right out and, and say it with our words, inside we're thinking, wow, man, I wonder what they must have done. Right? Now, I think there's probably some balance to this, and that is that sometimes people's sin does lead to calamity. But watch this. How has Jesus called us to respond to those people? Isn't it interesting? I've always found this interesting in the church, that we welcome in the, the, the prostitute, we welcome in the drunk, we welcome in, you know, those who are confused, we welcome in all these kinds of people, but once they come in and they pray that prayer and they mess up after that, man, we're ready to crucify them. Oh, I'm going to spit out some truth because I've seen it happen in my 28 years of going to church, right? But how's Jesus called us to love one another? Not just those from the outside, but those that we within the church. As a matter of fact, maybe that's the reason Jesus took the entire chapter of John 17 to pray that we would be in unity and say, hey, by the way, guys, if y'all would be in unity, quit judging one another and love one another and offer grace to one another, then the world's going to believe. And that's what Jesus said. When you are one as I and you, Father, are one, then the world will believe. So maybe we need to take some notes from the fact that there is unity, or rather, when there is unity, we're going to see the world evangelized. But how's Jesus called us to respond to others? Well, first of all, I think that we need to be quick to not make assumptions. And this is the mistake that we saw the disciples make in John chapter 9 and, and verse 2. The disciples asked, they said, Rabbi, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. It wasn't anything that he had done or that his parents had done. And he throws out this truth bomb which blows up our preconceived ideas, Jesus says, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, I highlight this verse for two reasons. One is so that we will not become quick to make judgments about anyone. Hey, in the same manner in which you judge others, God will make that judgment, and God will make that judgment against you. So don't be quick to judge unless, of course, you want to be judged. But this verse also teaches us something else, which is that, and this is the same thing that Job's life teaches us, that is God will get the glory 
from difficult moments of our life if we will but trust him. God got the glory from the man that we're talking about, the blind man in John chapter 9. And as we'll see here in the story of Job, God got the glory from all Job faced. God worked their difficulties for the good and in the end for his glory. But then there's the third friend of Job's, Zophar. And Zophar, he spoke up and he didn't suggest or suppose, but he came right out and called Job a sinner. In Job 11, verse 6, Zophar says, A just recompense of thy sins has come to thee from the Lord. In other words, he was saying, God is punishing you, Job. And by the way, he's punishing you less than you deserve. Come on, what a terrible thing to say, huh? I mean, what a terrible, terrible thing. Listen to me, church. If you have friends who are telling you that God is punishing you, because of the things that you have done, it's time to get some new friends. Because even if in the free will that God has given us, we choose to sin and, and we fall into the consequences of our choice, a friend is supposed to gently restore us back to the faith. I just feel like being a little bit of a teacher and a little bit of a preacher because I'm a little passionate about teaching this to you because you need to understand how we're to handle other believers when they make mistakes, not if they make mistakes because they are going to make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. But listen to what the Word of God teaches us. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers and sisters, Christians, you all, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, should restore that person gently. That needs about, uh, I don't know, 125 amens. Because you know what? There's going to be the day that you're going to hope that somebody doesn't kick you when you're down, but they reach out a hand and lift you up, and they try to gently restore you. Are you hearing me? I'm getting amens from my older folks because you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's us, the, the younger, I just ran into a situation. I shouldn't talk about this. On, okay, I'm going to back that one up. But let me, just, uh, say, let me just say it this way. I'll try to word it this way. Oftentimes, it's the young folks that haven't experienced or felt like they've needed grace yet that they won't give it. Now, I found that to be true. Yeah. But listen, whenever you find your place to where, man, all you got is to look up and you're laying down on your back on the ground. Oh, man, you don't want somebody coming and kicking you while you're down. I promise you that. You want someone who's going to offer a helping hand, who's going to gently, that's the adjective that he uses there. Is that an adjective? I don't know English. I went to school in Kentucky. Is that right? Ah! Bad grammar, good theology, right? Brothers and sisters, if anyone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. Watch it. Watch, watch, watch or you may also be tempted. Listen, there is no place for condemnation in the body of Christ. There is only room for the grace, for grace. Are you hearing me, church? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't ever speak truth in love. But what I found is that we're quick to speak, but we're often slow to listen. Yet the Bible says that we should do the opposite, that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And if I can just kind of give you maybe a little bit of a glimpse of what Job may have been going through 
in this time of his life. In Job chapter 16, verse 16, it gives us a little bit of description here. And, and Job says, my face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Now, I don't know how many of you can relate to this condition, but you need to know that in life, sometimes this right here is the only appropriate response. The appropriate response to what's happening in our life. The appropriate response to what's happening in the world. I mean, consider Jesus. Jesus was perfect, and yet Jesus cried many times in the Scripture. Matter of fact, the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows. Do you know why? Because he was perfect. He was perfect. And there's something for us to learn here, and that's this, is that when we're not all absorbed in ourselves, we can feel the sadness of the world. Then we can actually come out and have come out of us the joy of the Lord, which happens inside of the sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. The weeping, watch this, it drives you into joy. It enhances the joy. And then the joy enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. In other words, you become emotionally healthy. Now, mind you, sometimes Job uh, acted in, in anger, responded in anger. Sometimes he responded in agony. But Job listens to what his three friends has to say, and he responds to his critics, and he calls them out. He refused to listen to their lies. I'll tell you what, I'm thankful that as I get a little bit older and as I've walked through a few things in my life, I will say it with a smile on my face and really mean it in a smile on my heart, but I'm not going to allow someone to speak something over me that's not the truth of God. And don't you allow it to happen either. And you can love that person and you can smile it and you don't have to fake it, but you can speak it out and say, I'm sorry. Mm -mm. That's not who God says I am. And I don't believe that. That's a lie. Job says this of his friends in Job 13, 5. He says, I wish that you would hold your peace. That you might be thought to be wise men. <laughs> Job essentially says to them, your words are showing your ignorance. You should probably shut up and perhaps other people may actually think that you're wise. I got to say, man, I think I could be friends with Job, <laughs> right? Because I can relate to this response here. But I want you to consider, if you will, all that Job endured. And if you've never read the entirety of the book of Job, you should read it. I mean, I, I, that's my challenge to you. I know we're wrapping up the series and everything. But, man, just let that be the cherry on top. Because you can go read the book of Job. And, honestly, it will take less than two hours. It would take like an hour and 45 minutes on the average reading time. And yes, I looked that up, okay? Uh, so less than two hours and you can read it. And I'm telling you what, there's so many life lessons. Um, his life has so many lessons that I, I, there's no way I could dare touch on them all in, in just two messages. But I believe that Job's story was written to teach us about life, to teach us about God, and to teach us about others. 
And really, it's for that reason that, that Job is one of my, my favorite characters and stories in the Bible. Now, in Job 32, we're introduced to a fourth friend, Elihu. And we don't know exactly at what point Elihu comes on the scene, but we know that he at least heard what the other three friends say because Elihu mentions it. And chapters 32 through 37 are all Elihu offering the longest and the last speech to Job. And he shares his thoughts about the situation. And even more importantly, he speaks on behalf of God. He rebukes Job's three friends. But then Elihu rebukes Job for saying and acting as if Job had never done anything wrong. I don't know if you caught that with Job, but he kind of, a little bit, it's like, okay, Job, you're kind of highlighting all the good deeds you've done here. But Elihu comes along and makes it clear that all have sinned, which we know is perfectly in a line with what we read in the New Testament in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned, right, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Elihu, he shows us that there is a time to speak truth even to those who may be in a difficult circumstance. Can I just say that I am grateful for the Elihus that I have in my life. I had several of them who brought me a comfort as I walked through all that I just recently faced, but they also spoke the truth of God to me in love, which was the real comfort that I needed. You see, Elihu, he differed from the other three friends in this way. The three friends, they used theology and theological arguments as a way to wound rather than to heal. Now, that's not the place of theology or or for theological uh, arguments. That's not the fault of it, rather, because they do have their, their proper place. It's the fault of those, like Job's friends, who... They fastened onto an inappropriate fragment of truth or whose timing was off or whose attitude was condescending or whose application was insensitive or whose theology was so couched in culture-laden cliches that they grated rather than comforted. But Elihu is different. As a matter of fact, Elihu takes the entire two chapters of chapter 36 and 37 just to speak of God's greatness. Church, we need more Elihus in our life. Those who will love us but will also speak truth into our life. And those who will constantly remind us of God's greatness. Because watch this, here's what that does. It helps us to readjust our focus. Hey, I am so glad that I married an Elihu, if you will. I remember on December the 5th, whenever Jody had shared with you that I was having some neurological issues and that I was going to have to step down until we figured out what it was. And I had anxiety that day, church, on December the 5th, unlike anything that I could ever possibly put into commentary. I'm telling you on a 10 scale, brother, I was every bit of a 10. And I did not, that day, I wanted to, I wanted to throw in the towel. I wanted to give up. It was, it was that bad. 
Matter of fact, they had to let me into the back door because I couldn't even see anyone. But I said yes, and I showed up because I knew this is where I'm meant to be. And God gave me a breakthrough that day. But before I experienced that breakthrough, I was laying, or I was sitting there trying to hide from everyone, having anxiety just nail me. And my wife comes up to me and smiled at me with the beaming love of Jesus. And she said, now you see what you're feeling right now? I said, yes, she goes, and she smiled. She goes, that's what some people live with each and every day. And she was right. You see, I learned that adversity makes us far more compassionate than we would have been otherwise. And through the difficult things that we go through, our suffering, it transforms our attitude towards ourselves and towards others. But I want us to segue to the end of the book of Job, because um, though Job was a righteous man, as we just stated, there were areas in Job's life that God still wanted to work on. And we see one point where Job says to God, he says, Job, or he says, God, you've, you've, you've been cruel to me. He said, I've done everything that you've asked me to do, and this is how you repay me. And of course, these aren't the exact words, this is me uh, interpreting it, but it certainly carries that sentiment. In Job chapter 30 and verse 25, he says, did I not weep for him that was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? Now, here's where I believe that we can learn from Job and what not to say. Because in Job saying, haven't I taken care of those that are in trouble and those that are poor? He was essentially saying, God, you should take some notes from me. Now, you might say, wow, I'd never say that. Yet, oftentimes we do. And we do it often. I mean, like, we may not say it, but we, we think it. God, if I had the ability, I'd take care of the poor. God, if I had the ability, I'd do whatever I could do to help those that are sick. But watch this. We've got to examine those thoughts because oftentimes they can be tied to this underlying belief that we're better than God. Because after all, that's what I would do, God. I mean, I don't see you doing that. And we know that God's got the ability to do it. But God, I don't say, but, but if I had the ability, God, that, that's what I would do. But watch this, church. What if our suffering had a purpose? You ever thought about that? What if pain was meant to bring about something greater inside of us and maybe even to those around us? Now, in case you're wondering, Pastor, that's crazy. Uh, is it? Then can I just direct your attention to the cross for a minute? Because Jesus, his suffering had a purpose. And Jesus' pain produced something both in him and through him. That's why the writer of Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 8, says, although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, it says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, if Jesus had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered, then what makes us think that we're going to be any different than the Lord and the Master that we serve and that we say that we want to model our life after? Think about that. we close out this, this series, Storytellers, you need to know that suffering is at the heart of the Christian story. You can't find a single person in the Bible that didn't 
face suffering to one degree or another. I know that we all want to understand why we have to go through suffering and we want to understand why others have to go through it. But here's what you need to know about understanding. If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. So as we allow ourselves to become like him in how we love and how we treat others, but also in his sufferings, despite its painfulness, we get to experience the truth that it's filled with purpose and usefulness. Friends, God's will is that suffering will refine us, not destroy us. And he refines us because God himself walks with us in the fire. I have to pass along one thing that God taught Jody and me and what we went through. I learned that when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but we never really were. Now, maybe that scares you because you like to be in control. But it gives me enormous peace because I realize now that God is control, a much, much more better and reliable source. Are you with me? I don't know how much of what I'm saying is making sense to you, but I guess I think I'm convinced that there are often times in life that when someone shares with you the wisdom of, of what they've experienced, it's not until you've had that experience yourself before it fully clicks. But I'm going to share it anyway. See, here's what I've also learned. It's in our nature to be strong and to be independent. Yet there is no room for ego in suffering. You see, whenever God strips you of your ego, it then opens the door for you then to be able to authentically relate to others. And as I'm drawn closer to others, I experience God in the here and the now. If that doesn't make sense to you, then just store these words away, can them up, put them in your cellar, (laughs) and then go back to them the next time that you find yourself in suffering. Here's another nugget that I want to share with you about suffering. Guys, I hope you guys are catching this because I had to pay a heavy cost to teach you all this. Suffering tends to cause a person to be self-absorbed, which is not the purpose of God. And what I mean is when suffering comes to our door, it's not a time for us to to focus on how to get out of it. But we've got to look at suffering as a way to get to know God better. Paul and Silas went in there sitting there thinking, hey, man, you got a bobby pick so we can pick the locks? (laughs) I mean, think about it. No, this is a time for us to lift up the name of Jesus, and it's for an, an opportunity for us to serve him. And to reflect and emulate him and to draw near to him as never before. Now think about this. Could the observers of the crucifixion clearly perceive the ways of God? No. Even though they were looking right at a wonder of grace, they saw only darkness and pain. And the categories of their human reasoning was that surely God isn't working in and through this. And so they called out to Jesus, come down from the cross, as they sneered at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But they did not realize that he could save others only because he did not save himself. I know that you've heard me say this many times, but I'll continue to say it as long as I live. I am thankful 
for all that God allowed me to go through, as painful as it was. And I reflect on the things that God taught me. And it, when I look at the life of Job, and, and I, I noticed this truth, it's something that I'm still trying to apply daily. And that is that we must reorder and reprioritize our love. You see, suffering, it, it almost always shows us that there are some things that you thought that you couldn't live without, but you can live without them if you lean on God. And watch this, that brings freedom. It brings freedom. And when you read the end of the book of Job, God speaks to Job. And we find that Job is a much more humble man. As a matter of fact, Job 42, verse 6, Job says, I retract and I repent. Hmm. Now catch that. Because Job was a righteous man. So why is he retracting and repenting? Here's why. Because none of us have arrived. And when Job questions why God allowed such things to happen to him, and he dares to allude to the accusation that God isn't doing his job, that he's forgotten about Job, his words essentially dethrone God in his heart. And it removes God from his rightful place. And church, Christians do this all the time. But consider this. A seven-year-old can't question the mathematical equations of a world-class physicist. Yet we question how God is running the universe and the world all the time. This Tuesday, May the 24th, I will have been serving Jesus for 28 years and it also happens to be my 25th wedding anniversary. I just figured that out yesterday, guys. I knew. How cool is that? I know that may not mean much to you, but that's cool. I was sitting there. Maybe the Holy Spirit brought that to my attention because I knew that I, get, I gave my life to Christ on a Tuesday. And I remember it was the third week in May because it was right after I had graduated high school. And I just felt that prompting, and I looked it up, and I just had not seen that in 25 years of being married, 28 years of being a believer. It's May the 24th, so I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. But anyway, um, after 28 years of following Christ and reading God's word, I've learned that it takes the entire Bible for us to understand all the reasons that Jesus' death on the cross was not a failure or a tragedy, but a consummate wisdom. Like it takes a major part of the book of Genesis for us to help understand why there was tribulation in Joseph's life, but yet there was purpose in it. And it takes the entire book of Job to understand why Job went through all that he did. See, I think that oftentimes what we want is we all want our own book, right, <laughs> full of explanations. But even though we can't know all the particular reasons for our crosses, we can look to the cross and know that God is working it out. You see, God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. That's a truth nugget. It's worth writing down. I'm going to say it again. God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. And a book like Job, it pulls back the veil, and really it reveals this very thing. And so if you're facing something hard, then that means that there has to be something great ahead. 
And yes, there will be times that you will weep. And yes, there will be times that you will feel pain. And there will be times when you will feel angry or even hopeless. But watch this. Your story isn't over. Your story has a glorious, beautiful ending. There are 42 chapters in Job. And only seven verses at the very end of chapter 42 talk about how God restores Job's fortune. The Bible says that he restores everything, and he does it everything twofold. How cool is this? I have a word. I do this every year. I, I encourage you to do this. At the beginning of every year, I always ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing in the world? What are you doing here in our city? What are you doing in our church? What are you doing in my life? And every year, I ask God to give me a word, and he has been faithful every single year to tell me what that word would be. Now, I didn't understand what I heard from him at the beginning of the year, and now it's starting to make sense because here's what the Lord told me. He said, this is the year of the double. And you know what? I'm not trying to compare my life to Job because there's no comparison to the two, but I just walked through the most difficult thing I've ever went through in my entire lifetime. And you know what? When I read the end of the book and I got to it and saw that it says that everything was restored double. Hold on to that word, church. Some of y'all need to claim that in your life because some of you, because I can see it, I can discern it by the Spirit. I can almost point out who you are that's walked through some difficult stuff. I can see it in your faces right now. The rest of you, I still see you think you're grabbing it. You've not faced it to that quite degree yet. You will in life. Life is tragic. It is. We live in a fallen world. We're going we're, we're to face sufferings. We're going to face, it's just going to happen. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm just telling you so that you're prepared. But we don't need to be fearful in any form or fashion. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. We overcome. We win. I've read the book of Job and the end of it. I've read the end of the Bible. We win. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We win. But let me read you the last two verses of the book of Job and grab this. These are the last two verses of the book of Job. In Job 42, verses 16 and 17, it says, And after all of this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Other translations say full of life. Now, some of you might wonder, well, why doesn't the scripture list out the next 140 years of Job's life? Because there's no need. Like, God's word gives us what we need to know. And he tells us that everything is restored double. And then he goes and lives another 140 years full of life. I mean, like if all of Job's 140 years were to be recorded, it would have taken up tens of thousands of chapters, right, to record it all. But my point is this, guys. The best is still yet to come, my friends. God's word tells us what we need to know and how we should live, but we've got to trust him. And know that he is not a God who leaves things unfinished. He's not giving up on you. So don't lose hope, but trust him. Trust him and know that he is working all things together for the good of those that love him and that are called according to his purpose. Amen? Do you believe it? Because it is absolutely true. Amen. Come on, stand to your feet with me if you would.
Can I, can I give you one more thought? I'm going I'm to leave you with one last thought. And that's this, that only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. Only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. You see, for those of you who have put in your faith and trust in Christ, we have an anchor for when the storm comes. We have a foundation that is sure. We have a promise that no matter how things may appear, Jesus is the one who's writing our story. And our story will work for our good and for his glory. But I just want to ask, who's here this morning and you've never placed your trust in Jesus? You've been trying to do things on your own. Or you've been looking to the things of this world to try to get you through. Well, can I just tell you that anything that the world tries to provide to you, it is temporary at best. Christ, it is he who is the fulfillment of all things. And he's the one and the only one that provides a permanent solution. Because his solution is an eternal solution. And you might ask, well, what solution are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the need. For reconciliation with God. And I'm talking about a peace that can only come from God. And I'm talking about having a strength to face the many pressures that life can and will bring. So I just want to ask if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you want to say yes to him, surrendering to him, trusting him, I want you to know that God will do a work in your life that's greater than anything that you could ever possibly imagine. Faithful is he who begins a good work in you to complete it. Because, friends, anything else that we have, we are operating in our own strength or someone else's strength, which is always far less. I can't, I mean, the words can't even compare to what God gives us. We can do all things through Christ, but only through Christ. And not only that, Friends, I've got to say this. There's only one way to heaven. I know I've not talked about that today. Today we've been talking more about suffering and things that we're facing. You know, thank God there's a heaven. Thank God that there's going to be a day when God is going to wipe the tear from every one of our eyes where there will be no more suffering for eternity, folks. And we need to think about that. We need to be eternally minded because when we go through difficult things, we understand that this life is a vapor. But when we put our faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, he said that he's going to go to heaven. And he's preparing a place where one day he is going to bring us to himself. Man, what a blessed assurance and a blessed hope that is. But it's only hope and it's only assurance if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. So if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and I'm talking not only to those of you that are here this morning, but to those of you that will be watching this maybe live or maybe at some other point later on. Right now is the time. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Do you know why the Bible says that, that today is the day of salvation? Because you don't have the promise that tomorrow may come around. So that's why we say that today, if he knocks on your heart, 
say yes to him. Bow your heads with me if you would. If you're here and you want Jesus Christ, you want the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Your deeds can't get, good deeds can't get you into heaven. Someone else that you know who knows God can't get you there either. They can't put in a good word for you. It's only a relationship with Jesus Christ and it's faith in what he has done in the finished work of the cross that resolves everything. When we were talking about resolving today, that reconciles us, that justifies us, that causes us to be justified, not sin, and brings us into right standing with God. And it gives us the promise of eternity. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you right now, would you raise your hand? Just put it up, and I'm going to pray. Raise it. I'm going to, I'm going to pray with you. Yeah. Come on. Who else? Praise God. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. I see your hand. I see your hand. Yeah. 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 Who else? Several hands is up. Who else? Who else wants to join in? Man, today's the day. Today's the day. If the Holy Spirit of God is moving on your heart, why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? What lie have you believed that makes you think that once you leave this place, there's something out there that's going to be better than God? Friends, it's a lie. Reject it and receive Christ. Who else wants to pray with those that have raised their hands? And I'm going to just lead us in a prayer of surrender right now. Anyone else? Anyone else? Here's what we're going to pray right now. Saints of God, those of you who have prayed this prayer before, join in with us. But those of you that raised your hands specifically, I ask you right now, as I lead you in this prayer, take ownership of these words. The Bible says if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, that we'd be saved. It says if we confess with our mouth that he's Lord. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're confessing him as Lord. So pray this prayer out loud with me if you would. Pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my need for a Savior. I ask you, Lord, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to turn from them. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for the sin of the world. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave, just as your word says. And now I want to know you and make you known. In Jesus' name.